Good afternoon. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And this afternoon, I am here to introduce our speaker, Vincent Carrada, who is a native New Yorker and also a professor of English at the University of Maryland. He is the author or editor of more than 10 books, including scholarly editions of the writings of Equiano, Wheatley, Sancho, Cuguano, and others. His most recent book, um, well, his last recent book, Equiano, the African Biography of a Self-Made Man, was the winner of the Annabelle Jenkins Prize. His book that he's going to discuss this evening, Phyllis Wheatley, Biography of a Genius in Bondage, has received great reviews. And I'm just going to read a brief one for you from Publishers Weekly. Quote, in this first full-length biography of the mother of African literature, Karada offers a thoroughly remarkable, fully scholarly life of Wheatley. He unveils the truly remarkable figure Wheatley was as a highly literate woman in colonial America. And through a detailed assessment of her revisions and her correspondence, as the highly conscious poet she became. It is my pleasure to introduce to you a scholar of extensive knowledge of transatlantic literature and history, Dr. Vincent Carrada. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you all for coming. How many of you uh, consider yourselves familiar with Phyllis Wheatley? Okay, that means I can make up whatever I want for the rest of you. I googled Phyllis Wheatley this morning to see how many hits one gets if one does that, and you get over 630,000 hits. So Phyllis Wheatley is a name to conjure with now. Despite opposition from since the 18th century from some people who have questioned her uh, the quality of her writings, whether she wrote the poems herself, <clears throat> and her significance. To give you a sense of how much her writing is worth in material terms, in November of 2005, a 174-word letter of hers, the, the most recently discovered new writing by her, went on sale on auction. And it sold for $253,000, more than twice what the auction house expected it to get. And that's about a little over $1,400 a word. So anyone who doubts that she has today what we call cultural capital uh, should be relieved. <clears throat> she has hit the market, and I doubt that uh, she's going to fall back ever again. And yet, despite how prominent she is, how well-known she's become, and there are high schools, junior high schools named after her. There's a well-known statue of her on Commonwealth Avenue in Boston. If you're ever up in Boston, take a look at that. <clears throat> she has not been the subject of a biography until mine. This is the first full-length biography ever written of Phyllis Wheatley's life. Now, as I said, her reputation has had its ups and downs. In the 1960s and 1970s, she was very unpopular among a number of black critics who thought that she was not sufficiently uh, strong in her defense of people of African descent who thought that she was uh, too complicit in slavery, too accepting of slavery. As Henry Louis Gates Jr. has noted, these attacks on her tended to be in direct proportion to the lack of uh, information about her life or her poems. The people who attacked her tended to be people who had very little familiarity with what she actually wrote. 
I wanted to say a few words about the challenge of writing biography in general and the challenge of writing a biography of uh, Phyllis Wheatley in particular. Whenever you write a biography, and now this is my second biography, I wrote a biography of Olauda Equiano, so I guess I can claim to be a biographer or can be accused of being a biographer, whichever seems appropriate. <clears throat> but when you write a biography, you're completing a puzzle, many of whose pieces you're missing. Now, unless you're writing a biography of someone who writes an autobiography, and at the end of the autobiography says, and I now die. <clears throat> so you have the whole story, at least from the author's point of view. Even if you had that, you'd have to be suspicious of it, because imagine if you wrote your own autobiography, you might highlight certain things and downplay certain other things. Now, of course, with Phyllis Wheatley, we do not have an autobiography. And <clears throat> besides trying to fill in these missing puzzle pieces in, in the life of someone like Phyllis Wheatley. You also have the problem of trying to decide what to do with context, how much context to give. For example, with Phyllis Wheatley, how much does one say about the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade? How much should one say about Boston history and life in Boston? How much should one say about Boston society or slavery in Boston? How much should you say about the American Revolution, which occurred during Phyllis's lifetime? What should you say about the post-American Revolution economic crisis? And how should you deal with what I call the afterlife, the critical reception of Phyllis Wheatley's writings? There's no better way to bury a biography than to have an indigestible lump in the middle of it of literary criticism. <clears throat> Yet, you have to take into account the literary criticism because one of the reasons that people are interested in a life of Phyllis Wheatley is because she was a writer. But as a biographer, what I've tried to do is to write a critical biography as opposed to writing biblical, biographical criticism. In other words, trying to read her works in the context of her life, rather than to trying to read her life out of her works. <clears throat> because to do the latter, to try to read her life out of her works, would be treating her as a very naive and unsophisticated author, as if everything she says was transparent and autobiographical. Now, the the problem, the challenge of writing Phyllis Wheatley's biography in particular is that we have these large gaps. We have the gap of her early life, where does she come from? We have the gap of her middle life, and <clears throat> we have the gap of her later life after she's married to John Peters. We have, uh, paradoxically and unfortunately, when a woman of African descent is a slave, we normally have more information about her because she's someone else's property, and people keep records of property. For example, one way we can, tra we can track a person of African descent, male or female, is often through wills, because when people die, when owners die, they leave their property their people that they've owned to others. And so we can follow the progress of them. But once someone is free, there's often little interest in recording their lives, little interest by others in recording their lives. They become much more difficult to follow. People of African descent are not always identified as such in New England. We're accustomed in Maryland or Virginia, where I live, to see people uh, labeled by ethnicity all the time in the, in the early periods. This wasn't the case in New England. Your, what we call race, would be identified only if it seemed to be relevant to the mention of you. So that 
people of African descent are sometimes, sometimes you have to find external information to be able to say, well, that person is X, who is of African descent. New England also complicated things by referring to both free and enslaved Africans as servants. Yeah, almost never see them people referred to as slaves. So a lot of times we can't tell, uh, is this person free? Was this person free? Was this person enslaved at the time? We have, for Phyllis Wheatley, very few sources, biographical sources. The main one that people rely on and go back to over and over again was published in 1834 by Margareta Matilda O'Dell. And this is a text that people rely on because they've had little else to refer to. But we have to be really careful with Odell's memoirs and poems of Phyllis Wheatley, because one of her agendas was seems to have been to show that, or to argue that, Phyllis was actually happier as a slave than she was once she was free and married to John Peters. And in Odell's account, John Peters is a kind of snidely whiplash out of a Victorian novel, this, this really um, irresponsible bad guy who, according to Odell, left Phyllis in destitution uh, with the last of their three children dying with her and Odell tells us that Peters went south. <clears throat> Information that is of very little use to a biographer because there's a lot south of Boston. So I decided to uh, basically follow two methodological guides. One of them is a methodological guide that uh, the name will be familiar to you, but I suspect you've never thought of this person as a methodological guide for writing a biography. His name is Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Remember when he said, trust but verify? That's, that's a good guide for a biographer because you take the information you find that's given to you, but you've got to check it. The other guide, <clears throat> guiding principle, I'm I follow is one that historians use, and that is they call it falsify the evidence, or it's just the flip side of verify the evidence, but see if the evidence will hold up. Well, let me give you a brief summary of Phyllis's life, and I'll mention as I go through her life some of the discoveries that I've made and some of the things that uh, I've found that change what we thought we knew about Phyllis Wheatley. She arrived in Boston in July of 1761. She was about seven years old. We know that because she was missing her two front teeth. She was bought by John and Susanna Wheatley, who were members of the New South Congregationalist Church. They were very pious. John Wheatley was a very successful businessman with a transatlantic business. He did a lot of importing from uh, London. He also did a lot of importing from the West Indies. So he's very much a part of uh, <clears throat> this triangular trade, though he was never, as far as I've found, never involved directly in the slave trade, but he sold molasses, and so he sold the products of the slave trade. And of course, he bought Phyllis Wheatley, and she wasn't the only slave that he owned. So they bought Phyllis Wheatley at a time when they had only two surviving children, the 18-year-old twins, <clears throat> Nathaniel and Mary. They did something very extraordinary with Phyllis. Now, whether they did this as a kind of experiment or because they recognized that she was something of a prodigy or because it reflected well on them, that they could take pride in the fact that Phyllis was very well educated by the Wheatleys. 
And one of the ways that I determined <coughs> how well educated she was was by to compare her education to that of a, a contemporaneous girl about her age and a white girl, and as well as to another enslaved African girl of her age and at her time. And the white girl, Anna Winslow Green, was reading what we would call children's versions. Well, they were children's versions. They were advertised as such, of books like, including Gulliver's Travels and books like that, and 18th century novels, but children's versions, short versions, with what we would consider the good parts left out. And Chloe Spear had to sneak education. Um, her master, her owner, uh, was very upset that she was sneaking education. And she never got educated enough to be able to write herself, to leave her own story. Her story is uh, an as-told-to tale that's left to us. But when you look at what Phyllis was reading, she was reading Homer's Odyssey and Iliad in Alexander Pope's translation. She was reading Virgil in translations, adult literature of the, of the time. She was not reading children's literature. She was taught at least some Latin, which was very extraordinary. Even, even most whites were not taught Latin. And in 1767, the she published her first poem, probably through the contacts of Susanna Wheatley. But in 1767, she's only 14 years old. And this was the first poem that we knew that she had published. And we thought this was one of the earliest poems she had written. Well, I discovered in my research a poem that the person who uh, writes it down, transcribes it, identifies as Phyllis's first effort, which she wrote in 1765, when she was only about 12 years old, 11 or 12 years old. It's not a very good poem, and it's pretty short. But when you compare that poem to what she published in 1767, two years later, the progress is phenomenal. It's, it's amazing <clears throat> what she had done. And by 1770, she gained transatlantic and international fame, because in 1770, she wrote a poem on the death of George Whitfield, the great English Methodist minister who died in Massachusetts during the seventh, his last, well, obviously his last if he died, his seventh preaching tour of North, the North American colonies. And she... <coughs> She was still a slave, but she wrote this poem. She addressed it to the Countess of Huntingdon in England, who was Whitfield's patron. She sent the poem with a letter to the Countess, and the letter says, I realize that I'm being kind of, uh, we might say, cheeky, pushy, in sending you this poem and this letter, but I wanted you to see it. And this poem was immediately published throughout the colonies, republished in England several times, and she became very famous. She was baptized in the Old South Congregationalist Church in 1771, when she was presumably about 18, and this was not the church of her owners. And so this may be one of the first acts of independence on her part, though she's still a slave. In 1772, by 1772, she had published enough poems and written enough poems that her owners tried to find a Boston publisher for her collected poems. They could not find one. People at the time commented that she couldn't find one in part because her, her fellow Bostonians had doubts as to whether she could actually have written the poems. So what she did, and what her owner did, Susanna, wrote to the Countess of Huntington in England and asked the Countess if she would 
be the patron for Phyllis to sponsor the publication of Phyllis's poems in London. And the countess sent over ministers. <clears throat> the countess uh, had a missionary project that throughout England and throughout North American colonies. And so she sent some of her ministers to interview Phyllis Wheatley. And they wrote back to the countess. Uh, one of them, for example, says, well, I went, I met Phyllis, and I asked her to write a poem on this subject. And I sat and watched her write the poem. And she did write the poem. So she's, the countess is getting proof that Phyllis could produce poetry. Phyllis was sent over to London with Nathaniel Wheatley, the, who by this time in 1773 had taken over running the actual running of the family business. And she was supposed to meet the, the countess, but the countess was ill, so they didn't actually get a chance to meet. But Phyllis was in London for six weeks as part of what we would call a publicity campaign to uh, announce the forthcoming volume of her poetry. She left London before the poems actually were published in England. <clears throat> she left in September, uh, arrived, I'm sorry, she arrived back in Boston in September of 1773, just a few weeks before her book was published in London. And in, on 18 October 1773, she wrote to David Wooster in Connecticut to tell him among other things, that she had been freed since she came back from England. So she was freed between 13 September and 18 October 1773. And this letter, <clears throat> for me as a, a biographer, is the, the great turning point of her life, not simply because she announces in it that she'd become freed, but in the letter she tells Wooster about her reception in London. And she was received as a celebrity, as, uh, now you, the negative way of putting that would be as a kind of freak of nature, that here was this most famous person of African descent in the British Empire in London. She went to, she was taken to all of the major tourist sites in London. She, tell, she mentions them. She says, I was taken to the Tower of London, to the British Museum, uh, to Greenwich, and to various other places. And she tells Wooster whom she met while she was in London. Now, a lot of readers have been excited by the fact that she says she met Benjamin Franklin. And they think, well, maybe that had something to do with her getting freed. Well, they forget that Benjamin Franklin had a slave with him when he was in London. He wasn't promoting freedom for anybody at that time. His anti-slavery position came much later in his life, just a few years before he died. But what they don't, what people haven't noticed or haven't noticed the significance of is that the person she tells Wooster was her tour guide to the Tower of London and the other places was Granville Sharp. Granville Sharp, in 1772, the year before, had finally, after seven years of trying, brought a case before the courts in London that finally got a ruling by the Earl of Mansfield that no slave brought from the colonies to England could legally be forced back to the colonies as a slave. And I contend that it's impossible that Granville Sharp, with the most famous slave in the British Empire, and Phyllis Wheatley, who has, of course, had been publishing in newspapers in the colonies, including newspapers that had warned slave owners before she went to England, don't bring your slaves to England anymore because they can free themselves as soon as they get there. So she had to have known about the Mansfield decision. Uh, Granville Sharp certainly promoted it at every opportunity. 
And another interesting point I discovered is that at the Tower of London, which had a zoo at the time, a little zoo, one of the caged wolves was named Phyllis. So can you imagine Granville Sharp standing there with Phyllis Wheatley and not saying, by the way, <laughs> you can get free. And in this letter, at the end of the first paragraph, she tells Wooster, I have been freed at the desire of my friends in England. And that whole first part of the letter is written in what we call the passive voice. Things happened to her. I was taken to, I was brought to, I was given. As soon as she mentions having been freed at the desire of her friends in England, she goes to the active voice. I want to do this. I am going to do this. I am doing that. And she, she switches to talking about herself as a businesswoman because she says, I am being sent copy. I'm <clears throat> being sent copies of my book. I am going to sell them. I'm going to send you some copies to sell. And so that copies that are, that so to avoid having copies sold that I will not get the profits from, I am autographing all of the copies that I will profit from. So here we suddenly have Phyllis Wheatley, once she immediately, as soon as she gains freedom, is becoming very active in taking control of her life, becomes the first uh, marketing woman that we know of in America, controlling the distribution of her books, and once she becomes free, she becomes much more overtly anti-slavery. Her slavery comments in her poems published and written while she was still a slave tend to be indirect and rather veiled. Once she becomes free, in February 1774, just a few months after she's freed, she starts, uh, she has a letter published throughout the colonies in newspapers, a letter to a Mohegan Indian minister named Samson Ockham, in which she denounces slave traders, slave owners. She calls them the modern Egyptians. There's nothing worse than to call the modern Egyptian by someone who believes in uh, Christianity in the 18th century. And she became, she starts to gain recognition by not only a lot of whites in America, England, and throughout Europe, including people like Voltaire, but by fellow black writers. In England, Ignatius Sancho, who never, who never met her, was sent a copy of her book. And in 1778, he didn't know that she'd been freed. He refers to her in a letter as a genius in bondage, and hence uh, part of the title of my book. And in 1778, she's also mentioned in a poem addressed to her by another black who never met her, Jupiter Hammond, who was a slave in New York. And in 1779, she published a proposal for the second volume of poems, which would include letters. This, this volume was never published. Uh, she tried to publish it in America. Again, had no luck trying and publishing it. Meanwhile, in 1778, <clears throat> she married John Peters. When she came back from London in 1773, she presumably, as far as we know, she continued to live with John and Susanna Pete, uh, William, sorry, Wheatley. Susanna Wheatley died in 1774. Phyllis seems to have continued to live with John Wheatley until he died in March of 1778. Then in, on April 1st, 1778, we have an announcement of what everyone, including me, had mistakenly thought was the marriage of Phyllis Wheatley and John Peters. But I'd always been suspicious of the date because there are a couple of letters from Phyllis Wheatley dated May and July of 1778 in which she uses her, her name Phyllis Wheatley. 
She doesn't use the name Phyllis Peters. And in fact, in one of these letters, she says, write to me care of John Peters to his address. So I kept digging and discovered that she actually, they actually married on Thanksgiving Day of 1778. Uh, this means that the prim and proper Phyllis Wheatley that Odell describes was living in sin, as we would say, with John Peters for months before she married. Or at least they were sharing the same address. <laughs> Perhaps completely chastely. <laughs> but John Peters is the great mystery man of Phyllis's life. Uh, he apparently was, he was a free black. He was apparently doing quite well uh, up until 1780. Uh, we have, I've, I've done a lot of work on census records and tax records and jail records and court records. In the 18th century, free blacks are difficult to trace unless they have encounters with officials, especially unless they have encounters with the law. Fortunately for the biographer, John Peters had lots of encounters with the law on both sides of the law. Like many people after the American Revolution, he was in debt a lot. There was an economic depression after the American Revolution. Many people, white and black, went in and out of debtors' prisons. The accusation that he abandoned Phyllis and left her to die in destitution alone, as she died on December 5th, 1784, is rather unfair because the records show that he was arrested for debt in September of 1784. He was in jail in uh, April of 1785. It's not clear whether he was in jail all that time but he was certainly in and out of jail. So the odds are that, a good friend has shown, uh, the odds are that he was in jail when she died. And so it's quite unfair to accuse him of abandoning her. I decided that I should try to track his life after following her death to see uh, what had become of him. Odell's comment that he went south was of no use to me. So I said, well, I'll ignore that and, and just keep digging away in the, in the court records. Now, Odell also said that he was uh, someone who was um, suing people a lot and claiming to be a lawyer and all of this sort of thing. Well, it turns out that he was claiming to be a lawyer and he was claiming to be a doctor. But in the 18th century, you did, need, you did not need a degree to act as a doctor or a lawyer. In part because, well, first of all, a person of African descent did not have access to getting a degree in law or medicine. Uh, there was no uh, law school in the colonies that even a white could go to. You, you read law with someone who already practiced law. And <clears throat> tracking him down through these jail records, one discovers that he's in and out of jail for debt for <clears throat> through the 1780s. He does not really stabilize until about seven years after Phyllis's death. And <clears throat> He eventually is identified in the census records as my, my favorite one is where he's identified as gentleman, doctor, lawyer, Pintlesmith. Now you all know what a Pintlesmith is, right? A Pintlesmith is someone who makes the pin on which something turns like a rudder or a door hinge. And in the 18th century, it was very common for people to have multiple occupations because you could fail at any one at any time. And he did. Uh, the accusation that he uh, was litigious, that he sued everyone that he could, 
has some basis in fact because in the early 1790s he was actually accused and convicted of barratry which means being a legal pain in the butt <clears throat> it means that you you're litigious you sue everybody uh, the charges were dropped a few months later and he was never in court again so he seems to have learned that lesson he <clears throat> finally I tracked him down, again, through these census records. Uh, in 1799, the census record says that he went to Cambridge. And in 1800, the census record for Boston says that he's dead. And so I thought, okay, I could stop here, but I'm a suspicious type. I thought, why would he come back to Boston and die? Uh, and that I, I was suspicious of that record. Well, what turns out that in 1799, he didn't go to Cambridge, but he did go north of Boston, not south, as Odell had said. He went to Charlestown, which is now a little suburb of Boston. And I found in a, Charles, in a Boston newspaper a reference to, at Charleston, Dr. John Peters, age 55, died doesn't say that he was of African descent, doesn't say he was black. As I said before, the records often don't if it's not relevant for identification purposes. Fortunately, he died without a will. He died intestate, which meant there had to be a legal administration. And the legal administration, which I dug up, refers to John Peters, late of Charlestown, Negro and physician, deceased intestate. So he's, he's my man. And this record is great because it says what he owned at the time, including a sorrel horse, a sleigh, 13 books and a Bible, spoons, silver spoons and forks. And he lived as, he died as he lived, in debt. Uh, but most people at the time died in debt. This was not unusual. And so... Now that, I get, now that I've killed him off, I guess I should stop and take a break and see if you have any questions. In terms of reading Phyllis Wheatley and understanding her, I remember you were talking about looking at her body of work. I can't remember the exact name of her poem. Is it on coming out um, of Africa? Being brought from, from Africa, Africa to America. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that? And I would love to hear your interpretation um, of the, I think it's only four lines, uh, mm. because I think it's fascinating in, in, in trying to understand uh, you know, what the country was at that mm -hmm. state in terms of being the Christian background of our country. Because I felt like that that's part of how she's expressing herself. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Right. Thanks. Good question. Because that's, that's Henry Louis Gates calls that her most notorious poem. Uh, and we need to keep in mind uh, several things. People tend to read, especially people who um, find fault with Phyllis Wheatley, tend to read her what the big term that we people in literature use is synchronically, as if she was writing out of time, rather than diachronically, as if she was writing in time. In other words, not paying attention or taking into consideration when in her life did she write a particular poem? What were her circumstances? And in the case of someone who was enslaved, was she enslaved when she wrote it? Or was she free when she wrote it? That poem she wrote when she was about 14. So she was a, she was a child yet. <clears throat> On being brought from Africa to America, "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught, me ben taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Savior too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew, some view our sable race with scornful eye, quotes, their color is a diabolic dye, close quotes. 
Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as cane, may be refined and join the angelic train. Now, people have read that poem as an acceptance of slavery, as a, an embrace of slavery, as a kind of fortunate fall that has taken the African from the pagan land and introduced the African to Christian Christianity and hence salvation, and so therefore slavery is a good thing. There's, there are several problems with that reading. Uh, for one thing, if you are a Christian, now imagine that you are, whether you're a Christian, um, a Jew, a Muslim, if you believe in a benevolent God, you believe that everything that happens in this world, in this time, is part of some benevolent plan, ultimately. Though that plan may not be, or has not been, fully revealed to us in time. It's a benevolent plan out of time. Right? <clears throat> because Christians, Jews, and Muslims do not believe in a malevolent God who does nasty things to us because he can, or a God who is equally good and evil. So she is, at one level, expressing very conventional Christian belief. There's also a subversive way that you can read this poem. That line, remember Christians, Negroes, black as cane, may be refined and join the angelic strain. It depends on how you read, especially the remember. Do you read remember Christians that Negroes black as cane may be refined and join the angelic strain? Or should we read that line, remember that Christians, Negroes black as cane? In other words, if we read it that way, the second way, black as cane becomes metaphoric. It does not refer to skin color necessarily. Whites can be as black as Cain in sin as Negroes can be. And of course, that would be conventional Christianity too uh, because in the, in the biography, I give an example or two of contemporaneous whites whom Phyllis knew who were preachers in Boston, who use black in, in the metaphoric sense. Uh, one says very explicitly, whites are, can be blacker than blacks. And he's clearly talking about <coughs> metaphorical sin. So even that most notorious poem can be read uh, as a little, you know, that we may need to read that more carefully. Well, she published it in 1773, but she wrote it before that, several years before that. No, it's too early. Yep. Uh, I have a question. Um, you mentioned that um, she joined another church or she was baptized in another church besides the Second Congregational Church that her um, owner belonged to. Is, did you find any evidence that would suggest to you that she, wouldn't, she could not be admitted to the other church because she was a slave or because she was black? Or was there a... Um, or did you find evidence that the the church that she did join was was more open to uh, accepting um, slaves or, or blacks into their congregation. Good question. No, uh, blacks were or people of African descent, free or enslaved, were uh, baptized in both churches. The Congregationalists were strong believers in uh, proselytizing and that they should convert uh, people of African descent uh, to Christianity. 
they took a uh, certain pride in doing so as Christian masters that they would, and of course this is one of the ways that they could uh, kind of comfort themselves for what they're doing is to say, well, <laughs> we've, we've given this person access to eternal salvation. So, you know, we're good people. So, so you made sure conclusions that this was something that she did well, it's it's. I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a conclusion. I say that this may be uh, an early act of independence on her part to be baptized in Old South rather than New South. I don't have any evidence beyond that. It, it's it's just very interesting that she's not baptized in the uh, the church of her owners, the church that. Uh, her owners were married in that all of their children their children were baptized in um, where was um, the writer Odell from north she, south or she was from Boston oh she was from know. Boston yeah. okay because I was wondering why uh, such a negative outlook on uh, on her her book you know I didn't know if she was from the north or south or from Boston or whatever no there's not much mention of Phyllis in the South. Um, there are a couple of mentions of her, but people in the South weren't big on promoting the notion that blacks could write. It was this guy, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> you know his famous comment on Phyllis Wheatley. Religion could produce a Phyllis Wheatley, but it could not produce a poet. He attacks her um, very directly. And his, his copy of her poems is in the Library of Congress. So. Well, I'm paraphrasing a bit. That religion could produce a Phyllis Wheatley, but could not produce poetry. She could not produce poetry. He's very hostile on, uh, on Phyllis Wheatley. I just wanted to ask a question. Uh, the Wheatleys were very wealthy. Why didn't they leave her any money after they passed away? Why did they leave her penniless to defend for herself? And I think that's why she died so early. It mm -hmm. was such a struggle for her. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, we don't, we don't uh, another good question. We don't know the answer to that. We know that Susanna Wheatley seemed to be the one who had the most invested in Phyllis. She's the one who um, gets involved in promoting Phyllis. We have John Wheatley supposedly is the one who writes the little introduction to her uh, book of poems. But once she dies, uh, once Susanna dies, uh, Phyllis rarely writes about John, and we have 22 surviving letters by, by Phyllis, and she rarely writes about John. She writes about Susanna. She, uh, <clears throat> it doesn't, you know, the, she may write about John in letters that we don't have. She may have written that we don't know. But he apparently, um, and he certainly did not leave her anything in his will. I've looked at his will, and he apparently, uh, you know, felt she was free. She had her book. You know, she was making money. We don't know how much money she she was making, but she was writing letters to people in other colonies, uh, Rhode Island, for example, Connecticut, saying, "I'm sending you copies of the book to sell, and you know, please send me the money." So he may have figured, well, she doesn't uh, need the money. Um, she's not family. He left everything to Nathaniel Wheatley, the son, and Mary. But Mary was married at that point. Can we change the tone of this a little bit? The picture that you have mm -hmm. depicted up here on the screen, uh, where did that come from? What is the history of that? That is the frontispiece to her poems. 
that was published in 1773. It's the only uh, reliable image we have of Phyllis Wheatley. It was produced at the desire, the expressed desire of the Countess of Huntingdon, who wrote to uh, Susanna and asked her to have a frontispiece designed and to include a frontispiece. And we're what not is, sure of the uh, artist, sorry. There's a little bit of writing around it. Mm -hmm. uh, what does that relate to? It says, Phyllis Wheatley, Negro servant to Mr. John Wheatley of Boston. And you notice she's called a servant, <clears throat> though she was a slave at the time. And <clears throat> she's, it's a significant portrait because we have very few, in, relatively very few images of women authors while they're alive and as frontispieces to the books. And this is the only one, certainly, in the 18th century of a woman of African descent. And she's shown with a book on the table, which may either refer to her book, that this is a frontispiece to, or to the fact that she can read, or perhaps to the Bible. There, and, you know, clearly it indicates that she can write. <clears throat> this is part of the authenticating devices that are uh, accompany the, the poems, the book. Additionally, with that, uh, did you get any information on how this picture was published or how it came to be? Any more background than any deeper than what you said? Uh, no, it was published with the book, and the book was published by Archibald Bell in London. And we don't know, some people have suggested that Scipio Moorhead, who was a black artist in Boston, was the one who designed it, but we don't have hard evidence of that. We go to the book signings. I love talking into microphones. Um, do you know anything about Tanner? Ober? Yeah. Um, I've read her letters to Wheatley, but I don't know anything about Tanner. And I was wondering if in, in the research that you had done for um, the biography, if you had found anything out about Ober. Uh, yes, I did. And fortunately, I don't have my notes here. So I'd have to uh, direct you towards the book <laughs> where, I, where I talk about her. I, I mean, I do try to track her as much as I can um, because she, she marries and her name changes afterwards. And uh, she actually um, becomes fairly, well, prominent isn't the word, but fairly active. Uh, later. She, uh, of course, moves from Rhode Island during the war. She, she's taken from Rhode Island during the war. But I spent some time in the Rhode Island Historical Society. I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like a ferret. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, when I get on a trail, I say, well, I ought to try to see whether I can pursue this trail to its end. And, um, I did pursue her to the end. Okay, we have books in the back for purchase. Um, let's give Dr. Coretta a hand for this riveting. Mm -hmm.